Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And first up, let's take a look at some of this week's top science stories. Kat, what have you got in store for us first? Yes, here's a story about how an IVF study could lead to a test to predict the success of the treatment's outcome. Now, more than 10% of couples worldwide are infertile, and some of them turn to in vitro fertilisation, or IVF, in the hope of having a baby. But it can be a really difficult and heartbreaking process for many couples, and there's no guarantee of success, although thousands of IVF babies are born healthy and bouncing every year. But now, a new study from researchers based in Glasgow and Bristol, published in the journal PLOS medicine could lead to a more accurate test to predict how likely a couple are to succeed with the procedure. And how does it work? Well, the researchers Scott Nelson and Debbie Lawler looked at the outcomes of every single IVF cycle in the UK between 2003 and 2007. Now, that's a staggering total of more than 144,000 IVF cycles. And they looked at a whole range of factors, including the age of the mother, how long the couple had been infertile for, previous IVF attempts, whether the mother's own eggs or donor eggs were used, and the particular techniques used for the process, then correlated that with whether the IVF was successful and whether there were any problems with the babies, such as being born prematurely or being born particularly small. So they collected an enormous amount of data. Um, What did they actually do with it? Well, they fed it all into a computer and got something out of it. They used it to build a prediction programme that could estimate the chances of a couple successfully making an IVF baby. Now, this new model seems to be more accurate than the previous IVF prediction models, as it's newer and it takes more factors into account. But the model is only based on looking at IVF cycles that have already happened that we know the outcome from. So the programme needs to really be tested in a forward-looking or prospective study. So in other words, longitudinally you recruit people, you use the test to predict the likelihood of success, then they go through the IVF and you see if you're right. Absolutely. And the scientists hope to gather this data over the coming years from couples going through the IVF process. And in one way to do this, they've made a web application that you can kind of use the predictor online and also even a smartphone app to help uh, couples get involved and test it out. Now, at the moment, it's only suitable for couples who've had their fertility, infertility investigated. But if it holds up, then uh, it could be a really useful predictor to help couples decide whether they want to go through with IVF and some of the possible risks they may face in the process. We'll have to return to that and see how they get on Absolutely. after they finish the trial. Now, tears are traditionally judged to be a visual display of emotion, and humans, it's claimed, are the only species that actually shed them. But now scientists in Israel have found that they can also carry chemical messages that can alter the mood of other people close by. And that's actually an observation that fits very well with previous studies carried out by someone called William Frey in the 1980s, who showed that when you measure the composition of tears, tears that are shed for emotional reasons differ biochemically from tears that are shed when the eye is just irritated. Now, what this group have done, it's a paper published in the journal Science this week by Shani Gelstein and her colleagues. They're based at the Edith Wolfson Medical Institute in Israel. What they found is that when they got two female volunteers and they showed them a tear-jerking bit of sad film footage, they collected the tears that these women shed and they also then dribbled some saline down the face of the 
both of the women and collected the saline. Now, this is as a control, just in case anything was oozing out of the skin and getting into the tears. And they then recruited 24 male volunteers, and in a random order, unknown to the men or to the researchers, they presented to the nostrils of these men either the tears or the saline solution, and they asked the men to look at a series of pictures of women's faces and rate the attractiveness of those women. And at the same time, they asked the men to provide samples so they could measure testosterone levels, and they also brain-scanned them to see whether the brain showed signs of arousal, or, in other words, sexual arousal, the parts of the brain that get excited when you're excited. And what they found, interestingly, is that in 17 of the 24 subjects, there was a significant reduction in their perception of the attractiveness of the female faces they were looking at when they sniffed the tears compared with when they sniffed the saline. And at the same time, there was a big reduction in their testosterone level, and the brain scans also showed that the brain regions associated with arousal showed much lower activity in those men when they sniffed the tears. Now, the mechanism that's underlying all of this is unknown. The chemical which is in the tears that's doing this is unknown, and at the moment we only know that females produce the tears, and it has this effect on men. We don't know what the effect would be on men on other men or men's tears on women or children's tears do they also exert some kind of effect and how does it work it's interesting that the researchers say in their paper that this would kind of fit together this observation because we hug a crying loved one they say often placing our nose near teary cheeks typically generating a pronounced nasal inhalation as we embrace so in other words there is the opportunity there for whatever smells uh, are in those tears to go up the nose of the recipient and therefore influence behaviour so tears aren't just a visual display of emotion they're also a chemical one which subverts the mood of the recipient too interesting it was interesting how that one was reported in a lot of the press as well <laughs> it's uh, fascinating but um from from just crying at weepy films to maybe do you cry at a piece of music now i'm sure that almost all of us have a certain piece of music that causes chills to run up our spines music's so good it elicits a genuine physical reaction and now researchers at montreal Neuro neurological institute and hospital have been exploring the brain basis of this experience and to tell us more we're joined by mcgill university's valerie Salimpour. Hi, Valerie. Hi, how are you? Great. Now, tell us a little bit about the background to this. So what, what were you trying to find out with these experiments? Well, we know that music has been around for a very long time. We know that it's been around throughout history and in every single culture. And evidence for this goes as far back as history has been recorded. And we know that things that usually stick around for long periods of time are usually behaviors that are biologically adaptive or necessary for survival. But um, we're still somewhat unclear on how exactly music fits into this. So what we do know is that music makes us feel really good. In fact, um, the euphoric feelings produced by music have often been described as similar to um, the rush of very powerful drugs, like cocaine, for example. And um, interestingly, drugs like cocaine actually exert their effect on the dopamine reward circuit in the brain. And the reason why this is relevant is because this system in the brain is, an actually, is actually a um, phylogenetically ancient system, and it's evolved to reinforce highly adaptive behaviors, um, such as eating and sex, for example. So when dopamine is released, um, these behaviours are strongly reinforced. So it's kind of the bit of the brain, the pleasure centre of the brain. Exactly. So how did you test whether this pleasure centre is linked to listening to music? 
we wanted to see if um if if music is actually linked into the system and this is an uh, this is a hypothesis that's been around for a while so a few researchers have attempted to examine this they've all found um with their colleagues that when you're listening to pleasurable music there's some hemodynamic changes in the regions of the brain that are normally involved in dopaminergic reward but the problem was that up until now we didn't know if the neurotransmitter dopamine was actually involved so we used a procedure called PET um this is positron emission tomography and this uses radio ligands to determine how much dopamine is actually released and where. And um, so people came in and they brought in their own uh, self-selected music that was intensely pleasurable for them. And when they listened to it inside of the scanner, we actually found that they released dopamine. And this is sort of a big deal because the system is a very potent reinforcer and um, it actually by definition underlies our motivation and our desire to seek a reward. So they're basically getting a natural high from listening to these tunes? That's exactly it, yes, except that there are no severe consequences <laughs> like there would be with drugs, for example. Um, but one question I have, I mean, music is such a powerful thing in our culture, and how do you know that these people don't just, oh, I love this piece of Debussy because it was played at my wedding? How do you separate whether it's just a, a nice memory or whether it's actually the music? That's actually an excellent question because um, music has such tight links with our memory systems that it's really, really hard to separate out the two, and music is often um, used to sort of stimulate these pleasurable memories. So the way that we try to rule that out in our experiment is by doing extensive pilot testing where we ask people, is this in any way associated with a specific episodic memory in your life? For example, as you mentioned, your wedding or a summer in your life or graduation or some other happy time that they've had. And if that were the case, then we didn't use those participants or those particular stimuli in our experiment because we had to try to rule it out. Now, having said that, this is something that can happen unconsciously. People wouldn't necessarily be aware of the fact that they do have some sort of a memory associated with this piece of music. So in our next experiment, we'll be um, using new music that people have never heard before and try to see if we can replicate these findings with something that they can't have any um, previous memories associated with. So what, what is it in music that makes us have this emotional experience? Is there any information about you know, is it a specific tune or chord sequences? Um, well, it seems to be um, somewhat different for different people, which is really what's fascinating about it, because it seems to be very much a cognitive reward. It's almost as um, our experience of pleasure to it is all sort of dependent on how we're following the tone sequences that we hear. An example of this is that uh, if you hear a single tone, that's not really pleasurable for you. But um, if you hear a series of these single tones over time, that can become some of the most pleasurable and intense experiences that humans have ever reported. So how exactly does this happen? Well, David Huron, for example, um, has a book called Sweet Anticipation, and he explains this very nicely, where we develop a sense of anticipation to where these notes are going to go, and then our expectations can either be confirmed or we may be surprised, but either way, um, it seems like composers sort of know this, and they try to manipulate our emotional arousal with the way that they're sequencing these tones. And this is probably why our appreciation of music is largely cortical or um, intellectual or cognitive, if you will. And our results actually provide very nice evidence to support this hypothesis because we found that right before we combined our PET procedure with fMRI, so we can get some temporal information on um, what's happening in the brain as well. And we found that right before this um, peak emotional response, which we measured by chills, for example, in our study, participants were actually showing dopamine release in different regions of the reinforcement circuit that had has very strong connections with the frontal cortex. Now, the frontal cortex of the brain is a part that's highly developed in humans, and it's basically what separates us from lower-order primates, um, and it houses complex thinking. 
So what we see here is um, evidence that this uh, complex or abstract appreciation of an aesthetic stimulus, which in this case was music, is also tapping into the same dopaminergic system that reinforces the most fundamentally rewarding and biologically adaptive behaviors, um, such as food and sex. And um, the same system also produces the same intense euphoric feelings of addictive drugs, such as cocaine. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. And as a musician, I hope you find out what the key the key is to making everyone love your music. That is uh, Valerie Salimpour from McGill University in Canada. And you can find more about that story. It's published online in the journal Nature Neuroscience this week. Chris. Thank you, Kat. Now, for many people, the sound of a dental drill is enough to send shivers down their spines. Um, mine included, although I've never had a filling, actually. I'm very lucky, probably because of fluoride in the drinking water. But for people who aren't so lucky as me and do have to go under the drill or do have to listen to one, then an invention from Brian Miller and his team at King's College in London might be helpful. They've actually come up with a system that can acoustically cancel the sound of a dental drill. So in the same way as you would use noise-cancelling headphones if you were going on an aeroplane flight or in a noisy environment, they've got this gadget which has been specifically designed to screen out the sound of the dental drill whilst leaving normal audio frequencies such as your conversation with the dentist untouched. Now, Brian Miller says he got the idea for the invention from originally uh, an idea that Lotus were trying to develop, which was uh, an in-car invention to make the ride a bit better for passengers, because by introducing anti-sound into the car, you could screen out some of the road noise. In other words, what you do is you measure the kind of noises that are coming into the car from outside, you then produce sound waves, which are the mirror image of those noisy sound waves, and the two meet and cancel each other out, and the environment is quieter. Um, he decided to do this for the dental drill and the, the prototype gadget they've come up with is a system that's actually compatible with your average MP3 player. So if a patient comes in with an MP3 player, what you would do is unplug your headphones from your MP3 player, plug this gadget into the MP3 player and then plug your headphones into the gadget. And what that means is that the music comes through normally, so you can listen to music or if you don't want to listen to music, you don't have to listen to anything, but the gadget is listening to the environment, producing anti-sound for the dental drill noises and everything else is allowed to pass through untouched and it reduces the exposure to that sound that the patient gets. So it sounds like a good idea. Have you had any fillings, Kat? Um, yes, I only recently had to have them, though, because I never had any fillings for ages. But I get my fillings done by laser because I'm absolutely petrified of having drilling and injections. The only thing I can think about this, it sounds like a good idea, and in fact the team at, at King's College say they're looking for investment now. Um, Brian Miller says the beauty of this gadget is that it would be fairly cost-effective for dentists to buy, and any patient with an MP3 player could benefit from it at no extra cost. What we need now is an investor to develop the product further to enable us to bring this device to as many dental surgeries as possible and to help people whose fear of visiting the dentist stops them from seeking the oral health care they need. My only thought would be, well, it's not going to do anything about bone conduction, is it? Because um, when you're drilling into the tooth, there's going to be a lot of vibrations from the drill onto the tooth surface, and they will be very well conveyed from the jaw and the skull, up and the skull bones through into the inner ear. So you're still going to hear those and feel those vibrations. So I, I don't think it's going to be the answer to everything, but it might, I suppose, make it slightly less painful for some. Yeah, if you can... St I, it's that kind of... noise. If they can stop that, that would be great. <laughs> Yes, don't do it again. Um, now, the other thing I mentioned at the beginning was this idea that going topless can harm your hearing. 
um, what I was actually referring to is a study about cars, um, because despite their suave appeal, convertible cars should actually potentially carry a health warning, because there is a threat to your hearing if you are in one going at high speed. That's according to a guy called Anthony Mikulek and his colleagues. They're based at the um, St. Louis Medical School over in America. They've actually got this in a paper which is uh, in the Journal of Laryngology and Otology this week. Now, what they did was to study five different convertible cars. One of them was a Porsche 911, very nice. Don't know if they got a grant to buy the cars, um, but they certainly got to make some measurements of people driving them. They gave the passenger in the car recording and measuring equipment and told them to take random samples of the ambient noise exposure when the cars were driven at various speeds, both with the roof on and the roof off. And what they found is that with the roof off doing as, as low as 55-ish miles an hour, the occupants of the car were already being exposed to sounds of about 85 decibel. Now, 85 decibels is said to be the safe cut-off. If you're exposed to sound of that loudness or greater for any appreciable period of time, this can have serious damaging effects on your hearing, probably because of mechanical but also metabolic stress on the tiny hair cells in the ear that convert sound waves into brain waves. Now, the real clincher, though, is that at 70-ish miles an hour and over, so that's about 120 kilometres an hour, the sounds that were being recorded from in the cars were well above this 85 decibel limit, and in one car's case, it was actually 100 decibels. Now, that's equivalent to running a chainsaw. And so, therefore, the sounds you're being exposed to are extremely loud. And so what Anthony Mikulek says is, in the light of the results of this study, we're recommending that drivers be advised to drive with the top closed when travelling for extended periods of time at speeds exceeding 85.3 kilometres per hour. So it looks, Kat, that you'll be all right doing topless round town, um, but uh, not elsewhere. <laughs> Sounds sensible. You need those kind of big cans on to protect you. Absolutely. Well, if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered this week, the references and the transcripts for each of those news stories are online on thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.